0: Salam everyone. Welcome. You're watching the U-Mentor talk show. I'm your host, Imran Dharamsi. Thank you for joining us today. Before we start, we just wanted to highlight a few exciting developments within Umoja. Um, so let me just put this up here. We have a new platform called u Inspire. We have a new platform called u Inspire. Um, and the Inspire platform is a QA platform where professionals within our Shia community can advise young professionals within the community and students. Um, so if you download the Umoja app on Android or iOS um, and you click the nine dots up there and hit Inspire, um, you'll be prompted to create an Umoja account. And once you create it, you'll have access to um, the Inspire forums. So as you can see over here, you can ask questions as a student. Um, And you can also sign up as a professional or as a mentor, we call it, to answer questions posed by young professionals or students. Um, So we hope that everyone in our community will take advantage of this great opportunity. And remember, it's only available via the Umoja app on Android and iOS. Today we're joined by Brother Jihad Saleh. Brother Jihad is a senior advocacy and government affairs advisor for Islamic Relief USA. He's focused on amplifying the voices and building political power of marginalized communities in the United States. And he, um, in his position, in his professional role, he coordinates Islamic Relief's engagement and lobbying with Congress and with various executive departments. He's also the co-chair of one of the leading domestic-focused advocacy coalitions in DC. Um, So let me just bring Brother Jihad in here. As-salamu Brother Jihad, thank you for joining us today.
1: Ah, Wa-Alaikum salam, brother <laughs> Imran. Sabr <Seba> Imran, habari Ghani.
0: <laughs> so you, you are all familiar with the lingo of Umoja. <laughs> oh, yes, unity. Very cool. Back in unity today. <laughs> Thank you. We're glad to have you. Um, but I guess so. You're very well educated. Just to summarize for our viewers, you have your BA in political science from UCLA, um, and then you have graduate degrees from Stanford School of Education and Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. And you are also the recipient of the American Muslim Civic Leadership Institute Fellowship at the University of Southern California. So if you could just start off maybe by telling us a little bit about your education and how it led to your career path. Uh,
1: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Again,
0: thank you for having me on. Uh, It is a privilege
1: to be here this afternoon with you and your audience. Um, And I I wanna say off the bat, first and foremost, um, I've been Muslim. I've been studying Islam uh since I was in my middle school years which started around 1989. So I'm showing my age. <laughs> but I've been Muslim, made my shahada just a week after mm-hmm. the LA rebellion in 1992, uh where I said la ilaha illallah muhammadur rasulullah ali wali wa allah. Um and why I say that is of all my pedigrees, of all my knowledge, of all my degrees that my mom has back mm-hmm. in her home in Los Angeles, <laughs> I'm from LA. The most important diploma I could say figuratively is the shahada it is my knowledge and relationship to god that is the most important knowledge that i have but i have been blessed because of the perseverance of people like my mother and other mentors and family and friends who've always uh, provided me support guidance encouragement um And, you know, the mental and social and the spiritual support that I need to where I wanted to pursue education. But, yes, I'm from Los Angeles. I went to UCLA, Mm -hmm. undergrad, a great school with a a strong Muslim tradition. I would probably honestly say probably the foundational most. uh, Some people Mm -hmm. argue probably the most important Muslim MSA experience starting back in the late mid 80s, uh, where a lot of other MSAs and engagement started after 9-11. It was good for me. Uh, in my Muslim identity when I started college in 1993 so you can start adding up those mm. years if you want to figure out how <laughs> old I am don't let this dark hair fool you there's gray in there um, <laughs> so I keep it slick back so you don't see it but and and also myself just for a little background because I know maybe confusing people saying I'm wearing my dashiki here and you know I know emoji. <laughs> um, I'm actually my mom my mom is African-American and my dad is Latino mm. he's Mexican uh, but uh, for both aspects uh, I grew up in a Majority, ex- almost nearly exclusively African-American context in South L.A., or used to be called South Central, Sinister Stowning, they mm-hmm. re- named it just South L.A. Uh, but again, because of my mother and my dad and extended family, uh, I was always they always strived hard, worked hard and through vision and, you know, uh, love and understanding, provided me opportunities for educational attainment, uh, enrichment. So I was able to go to UCLA, Mm -hmm. study political science and sociology, was active in the Black Student Association, or what we call the African Student Association, because we were pan africanists and also the MSA. And I was also on the student government. I was actually a Supreme Court Justice of UCLA for three years. It's like the United States, where once you're appointed (laughs) you're on it for the rest of your life. I was on the five-year plan at UCLA. Uh, It took a little bit longer for me, where most of you smart people Mm -hmm. like you get it done in four. Uh, But (laughs) it was a great experience, a lot of organizing, uh, besides my classrooms, you know, I'm, I'm a former teacher. I did teach for four, uh, mm-hmm. four years after I graduated from UCLA. But I'm always fond of saying to students and students I mentor, don't let cl- don't let the classroom get in your way of your education. Um, so mm. a lot of those the balance, you know, the balance of school and. You know, learning in your classrooms, whether you're in high school or college or grad school, but also the practical learning that you do through student student organizations, community outreach, um, you know, so forth. It's so important to really flesh that out and find meaning.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting point. You have to balance school and everything else um, to go to that higher purpose. Um, So where did your career start? Um, I know you mentioned you were a teacher, but how did you get into DC? Oh, well, let me, I'll try to be quick <laughs> on
1: that. Uh, hope I don't bore people here. Um, no, 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 I, we're here to hear it. <laughs> you know, after I graduated from UCLA, uh, I did what I think a lot of people at least 20, 25 years ago, now it's so different, and I'll mention this in a little bit. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the quintessential thing was if you didn't know what you wanted to do, and you wanted to give back to your community, particularly if you were a black or brown or Latino, especially from urban areas or inner cities. You know, it was like, well, you knew how important education was, how powery, empowering it could be. Um, it was often where, well, let me go teach for a couple of years, or maybe make it a full time career. So I actually spent my next four years after I graduated from UCLA. Teaching, But my first year teaching out of UCLA was actually at the Muslim school that was founded by the Kesvini family in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. which was the first school in Los Angeles Muslim school to go become K through 12. It was a great experience. I had turned, you know, small classes of South Asian and Arab and Desi and so forth, uh, but also majority Shia. But a good number of Sunni. Uh, I don't think we had any non-Muslims or people of other faith at that time. But the school has had mm-hmm. a few through its history. But it was a great time for me just to learn to, in, in, you know, enrich my life in the communal life of the larger Muslim community. But you know, I did need to also make a little bit more money. I needed some union protection. Um, <laughs> instead of teaching seven classes all in one day, get to a school district where you don't need that. Two or three preps a day. So I moved my next three years teaching at LA Unified School District in Los Angeles. And I actually had the opportunity to go teach at the high school that my family, at least my mom's side of the family, my great aunts and uncles, some of the younger ones went to when they moved from Mississippi. My family hails from Mississippi. But during the Great Migration, when a lot of African Americans left the South during the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, my family moved to Los Angeles. And I was able to go back and teach at the high school where my family originally moved to Los Angeles in the 1940s uh, to go back to that school and be a high school teacher for uh, three years, particularly in special education. Now, to move quickly on that is I enjoy teaching, I will always say, and I encourage you, particularly Muslim men. We have plenty of sisters mm-hmm. who teach, but we need more Muslim men who teach, whether it's in public schools, private schools. There is no greater title than I ever will ever have. Whether I do policy, advocacy, lobbying, the most important title and the most impactful position I've ever had in my life is as a teacher. And we have to respect that. In our Muslim tradition, teachers are valued. Maulanas, Usteds. there's a high regard for mm-hmm. that. And you see the impact that you can have on a child's life or a young adult's life the same way teachers had impact on my life in guiding me to make the best decisions I could. So I encourage people to pursue education, get their master's in education, their teacher's credential, mm-hmm. but it also could be a springboard for a lot of great politicians, community leaders, were themselves at times teachers and then became board members of education. I wanted to go become a professor of education, not around ABCs, one, two, threes, or your three Rs, but more about the sociology of education. How do communities work, particularly black and brown communities work in inner cities to empower their youth, to deal with you know poverty, hunger, homelessness, and poor education. So I went back to grad school. I went, first went to Stanford University School of mm-hmm. Ed and did sociology of education, looking at the educational aspects of the Black Panther Party. If anyone studies African-American history, the, the role that education and learning played in the organization. But to be honest, you know, you're know, you not going to do a whole lot with a master's in education research. So I said to myself, maybe I should do at least one more uh, master's degree, more practical. I didn't want to do law. I had a stepfather who was a lawyer. I had plenty of friends who were lawyers. I I respect the law, but I'm like, Mm -hmm. maybe do something else. And that ended up being um, where I was a, did my master's at Princeton at formerly known as the Woodrow Wilson School, but now we've moved the name to be the School of Public Policy um, at Princeton University, where I focus on education and poverty. But in, in between my year at Stanford and Princeton, I did do a fellowship where it was my first time into public policy. Into government, where I was a fellow with a Los Angeles City Council member, uh, Ed Reyes, who covers right by downtown Los Angeles. I worked for mm-hmm. him for six, and that was my first time learning that how to do community relations, standing on this, the city council floor, seeing how bills got introduced, and how communities would come to the, the city council member with their issues, and how he would work to help represent them. And I got hooked, and so you know, it it, it told me this is something I wanted to do even after policy school. I thought I was going to go back to Los Angeles and be like a community organizer, uh, you know, fight the power. And I'm not saying I don't. I that's that's not <laughs> a great thing to do. and being a community activist. But I had recognized that in the Muslim community, we didn't have a deep seat cadre or group of Muslim Americans, regardless of their ethnic or racial or Sunni Shia. We just didn't have a lot of Muslim Americans who had government experience, had learned government and advocacy. Work for public officials, whether it be city council, state assembly, or your members of Congress. So after I graduated from Princeton, I came to D.C. Um, with the, you know, looking to engage government through advocacy, and that's where I landed the job. Uh, working in Congress for four years, I had the the pleasure and opportunity to working for a member of Congress from New York City. If anyone flies into JFK Airport in um, New York, that's the district where my congressman who I worked for represented, and I did his educational policy. Uh, along with some other poverty-focused issues, but also most mm-hmm. telling, important was uh, during those almost four years, I was the org- I was the organizer for the Congressional Muslim Staff Association. There's Black Staff Association, Latino Staff Association, Christian Staff Association, but in Congress, in the United States Congress, there is a there has been a Muslim Staff Association. And for all you young adults out there in college who're thinking about interning, who may come to D.C. There has, for almost 25 years now, been a weekly Capitol Hill Juma prayer in the U.S. Capitol building, where each week community members can come in. You make your prayer at noon. It's open to everyone, to the public. Anyone mm-hmm. can attend, except that there's a national holiday and the Capitol is closed. Then they have to find another place to go. But right. I mean, that type of environment is working as a Muslim American who was dealing with educational policy in Congress, but also running the Muslim Staff Association and doing programs together with the Black and the Latino Staff Association and also attending the weekly prayer. It was a great environment. Uh, For those four years um, where I got to learn policy, but also encouraged Muslim Americans on my private time to say, pursue careers in public policy, pursue careers in uh, civic engagement and activities. And particularly in Washington, D.C., where if you want to come and intern or work in Congress, there's other Muslim Americans. You're not going to be alone. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, it it, is a place uh, for a lot of opportunity. So and I would just say this. The reason why I said earlier about being a teacher is when I was at Stanford and Princeton, I did see how the undergraduate students, they weren't thinking about becoming teachers. They were thinking of being kind of like iBankers, and that's like their fallback. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know
0: what to do with my life.
1: I'll go to Wall Street and work for five, 10 years, make you know, $100,000 a year. But then I saw a lot of times the experiences, the leadership, the study abroad, how students in elite universities are groomed and guided to these type of positions to go to Washington, D.C., to go to Albany, or mm-hmm. go to the United Nations and do internships. And my thing is, particularly for the past 10 to 15 years since I worked in Congress and now my current job, which I'll talk a little bit about, I know you want to have questions about that, is Mm -hmm. is promoting Muslim Americans, and particularly also African Americans, Latino, Latinx, Asian, um, and and Muslim Americans, uh, especially in high school, particularly in college and grad school. You don't have to be an elite school. You don't have to go to a top 10 school to experience these and take advantage of these type of opportunities. But what may be the challenges around um, well how do I afford that or where do I stay or where how am I going to eat for those 10 weeks maybe in the summer or a semester? Where well, there's programs that are available for Muslim Americans, for African Americans, Latinos, Asians that we can take advantage of to help provide you, you know, financial support, housing, professional networking. Mm-hmm. And even your school can even get some college credit uh, towards, you know, maybe a, a you know a government one-on-one elective class or something to that effect. But that's something I know we've discussed you, uh, you know, Seba, Imran, yeah. that i you will know, be happy to talk about even in a whole nother podcast about mm-hmm. if you're interested as mm-hmm. a student, especially if you're a junior senior, how do you apply for these programs in Washington DC? And maybe we could do that maybe as, because that, that should be a separate program itself, maybe right, in yeah. June, January or February, if we get past this COVID where people can start traveling again. <laughs> but childhood. I'll tell you this, <laughs> you can not still do it to interns. I just had three interns this past summer. Uh, for my work at Islamic Relief, we'll start getting towards, you know, we did it yeah. all online. I had a student from Air- University mm-hmm. of Arizona, one from North uh, Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill, and one from University of Massachusetts uh, Amherst. And it was all mm-hmm. done in distance. And
0: we had a great experience. So it is possible. It's not that, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, ah, I see an audience question here. Um, but I feel like we might want to save that for later. So maybe now if we, if we want to... Um, Go forward a little bit and um, talk about your time at Islamic Relief USA. A lot of people um, don't really know what the organization does. So if you could maybe start by telling us more about that and then how your role fits into that.
1: Sure. Well, Islamic Relief was an organization started in 1993 uh, in Los Angeles. So I've known about Islamic Relief since my days in college. Uh, But Islamic Relief now is the nation's largest Muslim organization writ large. It's a humanitarian Anti-poverty, anti-hunger organization focused on both international and domestic poverty, um, and working with communities, uh, you know, you know, socially, excuse me, uh, working class, poor and vulnerable communities, targeted communities, helping them provide them services and the support for them to get a, a hand up in life, you know, to gain security and opportunity to improve their conditions for them, their families, and their children, um, and you know, this is a it's a wonderful organization. I you know I want to thank people if you or you know your listeners or their families donate give their sadaqa or their zakat mm-hmm. uh, to Islamic Leaf every year we thank them uh this year even during the covid downturn we're on part on record to have our record breaking year of how much donations wow. now the muslim community we don't get money just from the muslim community but being Islamic Leaf no doubt the majority of our funds are donated mm-hmm. from the muslim american community um and and I think in the past three years, we averaged about 130 to 140 million dollars in cash and in kind. When in kind, I mean working with companies that donate pharmaceuticals, donate refurbished medical equipment that we could send domestically or internationally uh, to hmm. help again communities around, you know, poverty, hunger, homelessness, health, education. Now. Most people, again, know this is an organization where they send their money, their sadaqa, or maybe they'll volunteer at our walk for water, or they'll go to one of our fundraising dinners during Ramadan at the Hilton mm-hmm. or something in Los Angeles or New York or you know Houston or Chicago. But also Islamic Leaf, not only being a humanitarian anti-poverty organization and through our programs and working with local communities, we're also an advocacy organization, and increasingly so. So I left Congress after four years, and quickly I was hired by Islamic Leaf. In early 2011, wow, 2000, man, it's almost 10 years now, uh, to come in in Washington, D.C., they had moved their national office from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., like a lot of other humanitarian and anti-pover organizations have their national offices in D.C. to also right. not just do their programs nationwide or internationally, but also to advocate to engage with Congress, to meet with the White House or State Department or the Department of Agriculture or you know, the Department of Health and Human Services to advocate on policies that will help working class and poor communities that we serve. Uh, so they wanted to start doing more of that. And when I worked in Congress and when I saw that Islamic League came to D.C. and set up shop, I was like, oh, you're the organization that needs to be on Capitol Hill the most. Unfortunately, many members of congress the media the government when they talk about engaged muslims unfortunately for the past 15 20 years is largely around issues such as terrorism foreign mm-hmm. affairs national security as if muslim americans are not american first concerned about what we're dealing with here and not only that many muslim americans who themselves are facing poverty hunger homelessness in the united states or right. if it's not them they have family and friends in their neighborhoods who are dealing with these, these, these issues. Now, I want to be clear. Islamic relief does not help Muslims. Islamic thief helps people in poverty. The majority of people that we serve with our programs domestically are clearly people who are not Muslim. We're like mm-hmm. Catholic charities. They're inspired by their Catholic faith to help people, but they help all people. That's the same with right. Islamic relief and our partner organizations. And no doubt internationally, we work in some Muslim majority countries. Uh, but no doubt even then, Muslims are not all the same. We serve Sunni, we serve Shia, we serve Ahmadi, we serve even religious minorities in those countries. Even long, if they're facing poverty and need help after disaster or so forth, we are there to serve humanity. Like the Quran, like the community of Muhammad, like our leaders, our imams taught us, we are to be a rahmah, a blessing, and an aid to the, the mustasafim, the oppressed, and the disadvantaged, regardless of their faith. Like Imam Ali said that you know people were of two types— they're either your brothers and sisters in your faith in the dean or they're your brothers and sisters in humanity and both were equal in dignity and we should strive mm-hmm. to be a benefit to all of them so that's why i love working for islamic Relief because it gave me an opportunity when i left congress to help change the narrative about who muslim americans are when i meet and go advocate to members of congress with senators what house of representatives or at the white house or the secretary of education or so forth saying Muslim Americans are here working hard in partnership with Christians, with Jewish communities, with social justice organizations to end poverty, hunger, homelessness in the United States and around the world. Helping them to understand that they can talk to the Muslim community about these issues that all Americans are concerned about. That Muslim Ameri- Americans across all racial and ethnic and religious uh, communities face in their communities in mm. urban cores or increasingly poverty in surrounding areas of urban areas the muslim american community gives so much money to our local mosques our local food pantries our local domestic shelters uh even increasing domestic violence programs at the local level and organizations like islamic Relief at the national level that help fund some of these organizations we're doing this work but we got to understand that even though you may give your money to help feed the poor in your local community Mm -hmm. or have a food pantry at your mosque or your Islamic center, we're not gonna food pantry our way out of hunger. There's just way too much hunger in America America that the churches and the synagogues and the soup can deal with, especially during COVID right now. We went from 37 million Americans before COVID now to over 55 million Americans who go hungry or food insecure every month. All the Mm -hmm. food pantries, all the Islamic reliefs all the Catholic charity organizations can't deal with just the, the, the scale of hunger through your donations. So what does that mean? Islamic Relief and other organizations, we have to advocate to Congress saying they need to allocate the taxes that we pay, the money that we give to government through our taxes to say we need that money to be focused on helping the most vulnerable and poor and the economically depressed, and particularly during this covid and so I'm just proud to say that the Muslim American community, particularly through Islamic Relief, increasingly other organizations are uplifting the good name of Islam, the Muslim community, and our Christian and Jewish partners. As we, can, we stand to help communities in need from the West Coast to the East Coast, from, you know, from Duluth, Minnesota, down to Corpus mm-hmm. Christi, Texas, the Muslim community is doing programs in their communities to help the poor and the vulnerable. But we're also getting community leaders in all those cities from Los Angeles to New York to call their members of Congress, call their state assembly members, saying, we demand you as your constituents, as taxpayers, that you do with our tax dollars to help the most vulnerable, the most needy. During a time like that, that's as a Muslim community, as the, prof, as the community of Muhammad, we always make our priorities based upon the least of these, those at the bottom. We don't make our parties of how we as a community, and I'm not against people being rich or being well off, or there's right. Muslims who are very well off, and that's fine. But even then, as you know, followers of the imams, and when we understand the Quran, the importance of always standing with those who are most need, those our parties must always start with those in the most need. And Islamic belief has allowed me to do something that I believe I would be doing regardless, but mm-hmm. I'm blessed that I actually get paid to do this as a job. Um, and I think more Muslims should seek opportunities to be advocates, to be, you know, human rights advocates, to be lobbyists for social justice issues, protecting women, protecting ra- protecting racial minorities, protecting the poor and the vulnerable, the hungry. We do a lot. I know a lot of Muslims are always focused on what's going on internationally, but even what we have here in America, and right. the need for that.
0: Hmm. So I, um, there was one point you made that was very interesting, um, that in the mid-90s, the place to go if you wanted to help a marginalized community was DC. I feel like today, there is a lot of cynicism about the system, um, people, especially young people, saying, you know, no amount of advocacy is going to move the needle significantly. So I think this ties into the next audience question. Um, what might be holding back our Muslim youth from getting into careers related to government affairs and advocacy, and and what would like how would you speak to those fears? How do you think that young people can overcome their fears and reluctance?
1: Sure. Now I want to say first, and this is important: the Muslim American community is diverse. Whether we look from racially, the experiences of the historical foundation of the Muslim experience in the United States is the African American Muslim experience, the Black Muslim community. And then increasingly, South Asians, Arabs, Persians, and Turks, and Southeast Asians have come, and Malays, me- and so mm-hmm. forth. Those communities, um, I don't want to even say they're all the same. They're not. They're diverse. And then we have generational divides. You know, those who, you know, who are you know, just like any other community in their fifties or sixties or older compared to younger generation. I'm in my mid forties, sure. but I still feel like I'm young. And you know, I try to be <laughs> down with the youth. You know, I'm cool. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but then also gender. I mean, how are communities? especially in America where poverty is increasingly the feminization of poverty, women being the primary caretakers, the most vulnerable uh, as they strive to take care of their children, maybe in particularly in the Muslim American community where we have good numbers of now refugees, where people are coming without their, their husbands um, mm-hmm. or you know two breadwinners uh, in their homes. How are we dealing with these issues? So I'm saying it's diverse. And even when it comes right. to this issue of getting a lot, you know, being engaged I can't give a single answer, but I'll say I'll do a few responses, particularly youth. And I'll focus because I'm assuming that your audience primarily is more of a South Asian or first generation children of immigrants community. Um, not exclusively, mm-hmm. but I that's probably a good portion of it where I've heard. I'll tell you this. The women in your community, the women in the South Asian and the Arab and the first generation community are doing it. I mean, when you look at these, when I look at interns over the past 10 years, coming at least to DC, but even doing leadership out in their local communities. Young Muslim women are taking on issues of uh, racial violence, uh, gender violence, poverty, working with human rights, uh, civil rights organizations, pursuing careers in education, law, public policy, social uh, welfare. Hey, the Muslim women, give it up for the Muslim women. I respect that <laughs> and, and I, let's be proud of it. It's you brothers out there right. that need to care about, right? <laughs> You know, I'm pointing at y'all through the TV screen. Um, <laughs> is there, there needs to be more of a balance. So give respect where respect do increasingly. Mm-hmm. I'm actually more of the minority as being a man, being a male doing this type of work. Um, now, the question is, if you look at places like certain careers that may lead this or educational tracks, education, law, public policy… Social work and so forth, these historically, these type of graduate programs actually normally do have more women going through them, regardless of religion, race, or whatever. Okay, so these type of careers do attract more women, and that would make sense mm-hmm. as they filter through if they're going to do public service, nonprofit, mm-hmm. or government type of work. But again, for men, I've heard arguments for a lot of Muslim men again, if so, maybe the more South Asian, Arab, whatever background is, oh, they're still very much in the engineering. Medical school or IT now, the big one, IT work where, well, that what does that have to do with policy? Well, this is what I've always said. Isn't there a Department of Health and Human Services? Isn't there a committee in Congress on health and Senate on health policy? Um, Isn't there an association in Washington, D.C. with a lobbying office called the American Medical Association? And there's the National Medical Association Mm -hmm. or even the American Psychological Association. That are actually there advocating on the rules and regulations that impact the research and the profession of medical professionals. Well, yes, maybe you want to become just a general practitioner doctor, but spend a semester in DC interning at HHS or the Medical American American Medical Association, or get a position with the member of Congress who's on the healthcare committee to learn about how our policies going to impact your career as a medical professional. The same thing with engineering, science and technology you know, uh, committees or the American Engineering Association. These are ways I think people can find they think that that somehow their careers in IT or engineering or whatever it is somehow don't have a political aspect, and that's not true. Congress oversees everything in the universe. There's a committee for it, <laughs> so you can you know, work for your member of Congress. And again, even if you may not end up becoming an advocate or a lobbyist or like I do… At right. least you will be a more informed, critical consumer of information in your future career, and then maybe as an engineer or as a doctor or as a psychologist, you'll get active in your national association or your state-level profession uh, association and do that advocacy meeting You know, once or twice a year when you meet with your state assembly person or with your local department of health, how to speak more effectively in coalitions with other Mm -hmm. like-minded professionals in those areas. So I think that's one thing that sometimes we think that certain careers don't have a political nature or side to that, which is never true. These are all human-made constructs which always have politics involved with them. The last Mm -hmm. thing that I would say for people is um, it is not so much about their vision of what type of careers they want is, but as I mentioned before, I think a lot of people Is if you're not at those top 10 or top 20 schools, you're not providing even information of how to do these type of internships, at least the highly prestigious ones. And I'm not saying if you live in Denver or Chicago or Minnesota, Minneapolis, look at organizations in your local communities, whether it be the local NAACP or the, the local women's rights organization or the local program for, you know, food security coalition to end hunger in, you know, Houston. Do an internship with them. But maybe if you do want to get to DC or go to the UN in New York or intern somewhere internationally, then the question is, well, how do we do that? How do I afford that? And let's be real. Again, the, the vast majority of Muslim Americans are not rich and well off. No different than mm-hmm. other black and brown and minority communities that where the main issue is they would love to do it, but they don't know the financial means of how to get there and do right. it. They don't have mentors in their families. Maybe they're the first generation of, of college students, uh, you know, because their parents, you know or racial minorities in the United States who have been you know, consistently marginalized or poor education didn't allow for higher education or maybe, again, more of the immigrant community where when they went to school in Pakistan or Egypt, there was just no notion of internships. It was just like you studied <laughs> and that was all you did and you got your degree. And when they come to America, they can't help guide their children because it's just not an the experience they're familiar with with the kind of American uh, educational system and mm-hmm. the balance of not just book studying but also student leadership and uh, right. you know, interning. And increasing, we see now the ability to graduate just with book learning. Now, if you only have your diploma but had no student leadership and professional development by your sophomore junior, senior year, you're coming out of school behind. You know, people are very Mm -hmm. it's very competitive, especially right now with the down economy for the next couple of years. You got to do what you got to do, the extra step, the extra mile to get on even on your college resume. Again, I see some of these kids that were at the Ivy League schools I was at. And now they're applying for internships I'm working with. And I look at some of the resumes. Some of these young adults by the age of 21 have studied abroad. They've done two or three interns in New York City or something. There were student body presidents. And I'm Mm -hmm. just blown away about the level of engagement of what they're doing. And this is no different. There's We have Muslim Americans who are doing that. But this is not the rule. This is not the norm. So I'm always worried about how working class, poor, black and brown Muslim Americans – where, and also maybe Black, maybe Asian, maybe Latino uh, are struggling to figure out how to do that, how to convince their parents that, oh, I have a place to stay or there's money, there's scholarship funding for it. And again, that's, I think that's a bigger program I would love to do with you. But I think that's also just more that their schools are not providing them the guidance because they're going to a small state school or they where they're not getting to meet with their, their guidance counselors at the university to tell them what the opportunities are. But that's what Mm -hmm. we're here for through you, Mentor, to help at least start sprinkling to to kind of put the (laughs) idea in their mind to help it germinate. And then we can also have some follow up and talk about, well, how do we do that, you know, in the coming years? And 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 most important, once you do it, then you got to share the wealth with another student, with a cousin or someone back in the student Mm -hmm. association at your mosque of how to get your internship at, you know, Sacramento or in Austin or in Harrisburg or Springfield, Illinois, your state capital or kind of the national capitals of, New York or LA or San Francisco and Washington, DC, you know, it is possible, but it takes work. But one thing I've constantly seen is that across the board, the Muslim American community have dynamic, well-educated, socially c- conscious, you know, community-oriented young adults that you know are primed for the type of support that to be honest, why am I speaking to you? Which was invested in me. So That was given to me, what I'm trying to share with you. And I want to make sure that other people have that opportunity.
0: Mm -hmm. It's amazing. So you've given us so much amazing advice. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, I guess we're out of time, unfortunately. There's so much more. And inshallah, we can set up some sort of seminar um, for, for more advice. But what is your take home message to youth after watching this show? You are it, it may sound cliche, but you are the future.
1: Look we're living in perilous times right now. COVID, mm-hmm. racial injustice, economic insecurity, and these were things prior to before COVID. There are real challenges ahead. This is your society. Right now, I'm just a caretaker holding it down to when you step up, and your generation will have to take the realms, take the reins, whether it's elected officials, leaders of nonprofit organizations, uh, advocates to say, to take on the hard challenges that face our community of, you know, building safe communities, flourishing communities that provide opportunity for everyone, regardless of race, class, gender, for everyone to fully flourish. Now that's not easy. But again, what I just said a moment ago is I'm constantly being, you know, I'm constantly being inspired by what's coming below, coming up across the board, particularly Mm -hmm. if students and youth of color, you know, which majority, the Muslim American community is a minority majority community. So I'm just trying to hold it down till y'all get here. You're the ones that have the (laughs) real vision. I just got here by kind of like happenstance and because of my mother's love. But so many of you who's watching this show, I know this is what you want to do. This is what you want to be part of. You want to pick up that mantle. You want to make your parents proud. and You want to be the reflection and the, you know, the example of the prophet and our imams, and ultimately to serve Allah, to be the vicegerents that we've all been, you know, obliged to do as part of our do in this world to earn our keep and our, you know, the real reward in the hereafter. But we do that in working together, helping those around us, and being with those that Allah says Allah is always with the oppressed. those in need so work hard continue to study i will continue to strive to be a resource to you you know brother imran through emoja to give as much as i can in Mm -hmm. guidance and you know i want you to please share my contact information if you ever come to dc if i'm talking to your audience Mm -hmm. reach out to me i love to you know once we get over from COVID, you know love to have coffee with you and to share what i i can and maybe and if i'm visiting your town you know You know, I do a lot of traveling across the country, whether it be Chicago, Houston, L.A., San Francisco. I love to always speak to communities and youth groups more than anything else. I'm not worried about the old people, people like me. I'm worried (laughs) about you. So I just want to make sure that you have the resources because you're going to get the job done. You're the ones. America is on a precipice of a major change, demographic change, you know, of becoming a minority majority country. Um, The issues of it being a global society um, and so forth. And you're well-equipped to take that on and be the leadership for it. Don't deny yourself. Don't fret about it. Don't think that you don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers now. We will never have it. But I know that working together across communities as Muslim, with Christians and Jewish, with black and Latino, and with white and progressive social organizations, we have what it takes to build a fair, equitable, and more loving and beautiful world. And that's going to be the world that you're going to inherit. And pass on to your next generation, and I just hope I live long enough to see that to be with you, and you know, mm-hmm. as we prepare, as we work hard, you know, to bring forth, as Imam Matthew says, we know Imam Matthew doesn't come when his things are most dark. Imam Matthew returns when actually the people start to agitate and fight for justice. So if we all, as the Muslim and as the, particularly as the Shia, we look for that day towards the Imam, that doesn't happen just by passively waiting for the things to get dark, but when we start fighting back. For truth, justice, you know, freedom, justice, and equality, as he always said back in the Black Liberation Movement and the, the Muslim Movement. So let's let's get working. I'm here. Let's start establishing that freedom, justice, equality, and you know, putting that work to get it done.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. Thank you. Um, thank you so much again for joining us and for your advice.
1: I'll say about Imran. It's, it's it's a pleasure. You know, I'm, I'm again. You are part of that generation. You, <laughs> you are part of it. Look, I, I, I didn't even man what was I doing? You're 18. I was at home chilling, probably watching cartoons or something in my summer. Uh, <laughs> so again, I'm impressed. And, and, and if anyone's watching you mentor, I know you're all those type of leaders, future emerging leaders who are going to share that information. And it, it, it is my privilege. It is my honor to be able to work with you and that you you've give me a platform to speak a little bit of what, what I'm trying to be good mm-hmm. at. Thank you so much. Just a call ahead. Thank you.
0: Our honor to have you. <laughs> Um, So, thank you for tuning in, everyone, Um, and thank you again, Brother Jihad, for joining us. Join us on September 19th, so we're taking a week break, Um, we'll be joined with Sarah Faour. She's a student at University of Toronto, Scarborough, and she's completing the Human Biology Specialist Program. She also conducts research exploring neurobiology and enjoys communicating about the importance of science. So that one is going to be hosted by Sister Fatima Al sayed Um, So we hope you tune in Saturday, September 19th at 3 p.m. Eastern right here on YouTube Live.